Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. What I found out is that, like, there's all these, like, great words for grit including like heroism, right? Like steadfast, right? Like perseverance, like grit is one of those words that's like a super, super positive connotation, like stick to But when you look at quit, there's hardly any words that like are nice. Mm. And in fact, one of the synonyms for quit is the word coward. Annie Duke knows a lot about quitting. It's something she got really good at when she was a professional poker player on the world stage and a really successful one at that. We're talking over $4 million in prize money. And what distinguishes great poker players from everybody else is that is mainly quitting. They, they quit a lot more. So they're just very good at cutting their losses. So they fold more hands to start. Once they've committed money to a pot, they fold a lot more. They change tactics or strategies like in the middle of things. Um, and you, you have to be willing to do that. Annie's rallying cry is that we should quit a lot more. I know, it's not something we hear often. And that's exactly why I've been so excited to have Annie on the show. To teach us something that goes against common wisdom, but can actually change our lives for the better. Annie's the best-selling author of two books, Thinking in Bets and How to Decide. But today, she's going to give us a sneak peek of her upcoming book on the science of quitting. She'll show us how to get out of our own way and learn how to quit when we should. I'm Maya Shunker, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show about who we are and who we become in the face of a big change. Poker wasn't always in the cards for Annie. 
She actually started out at the University of Pennsylvania studying cognitive science, specifically how we make decisions in times of uncertainty. I was fully intending to become a professor, uh, which is kind of what you do with that kind of degree. It doesn't have a whole lot of practical application. (laughs) And I actually had all of my what are called job talks lined up. um, And I'd been struggling for a couple of months with a stomach problem. um, And I thought, I'm just going to power through this. And it turned out that my body said, no, you can't power through it. Um, And in fact, the powering through it meant that I ended up in the hospital because I sort of wasn't taking care of this problem. And so I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, um, very sick. So I decided to take a year off to try to recuperate. And there was a little bit of a bind, right? Because so I've been forced to quit for a year. And I can't, I don't want to start a new career because I'm going to go back and become an academic. And I don't know how I'm going to feel from day to day. So I need something that has like super flexible hours. And I really desperately need money because it turns out when you leave graduate school uh, for a year, your fellowship does not leave with you. (laughs) (laughs) You have to give it up. Yep. Yeah. So, so I did not have any money. So my brother actually suggested to me that I, I could play poker And that that might be like the perfect thing for me to do because obviously I could set my own hours and, you know, I could just do it to make some money on the side. And you know what? I just, I sat down at the table and it was like, you know, when like in the movies, they'll have like the heavens open up and (laughs) the angels are singing. Um, It felt a little bit like that to me because when I thought about what I had been studying in graduate school, uh, this was that, in other words, this problem of how do you make really great decisions under uncertainty. Mm. And poker is like super uncertain. You can't see the other player's cards. And in the short run, there's a really, really strong influence of luck, which makes the decision-making problem really hard. And it's really high stakes in real time. And sort of from the moment I sat down at the table, it turned out I had a knack for it. So I didn't actually end up going back to graduate school because I loved this so much. And I was experiencing a lot of success. Like uh, within a couple of years, I played at the World Series of Poker. I was making final tables. I cashed in the main event, um, ended up moving to Las Vegas. And this is what I really concentrated on for quite a while. And then in 2002, there was a new aha, which was that there was this amazing conversation to be had between cognitive science and poker. Uh, poker sort of informing the cognitive science and the cognitive science informing the poker. So I uh, started consulting and speaking full time and really wanted to write a book about these topics that I had really been exploring. So it looks like I've changed careers a lot, you know, from academic to poker player to speaker and consultant to author back to academic, it it seems like a lot of zigging and zagging, but there's this through line through everything, which is learning under uncertainty. Yeah. So quitting gets such a bad rep, right? And, you know, one of the things that I loved learning from you is that it's evident even in the English language that we are biased against quitting. Can you share more about that? Sure. So you have hero as a synonym, like heroism is a synonym for grittiness and then cowardice as a synonym for quitting. And also just by the way, one of the things I point out is we have this word grittiness, but we don't have a word quittiness, which is telling in and of itself, right? So obviously there are some negative ways to describe being too gritty, like stubbornness or rigidity, but they're few and far between. Mostly they're like 
amazing, like, oh, you're such a hero. You're so gritty. You have perseverance, stick-to-itiveness, pluck. You're very plucky, right? <laughs> you have metal. Um, and then on the quit side, it's just like, oh, you're a coward, right? You're, you're capricious, like all, all of these things. So so I think that it's really reflected in the English language. And then it's kind of reflected in, if you think about the way that we process narrative, right? We don't really see the quitters. Like what we think about is the people, the heroes are the ones who persevere beyond the point of physical or emotional or mental well-being in order to push past that and like cross the chasm. But the problem, of course, is that a lot of times those people have put themselves in danger in a situation where you really ought to have turned around. And what I think is really interesting, and I I talk about this um, in the book, is that from a narrative standpoint, we'd prefer somebody to push past the point of sensibility and persevere and, and actually perish to somebody who rightly quits early. Like, which do you think of as the more admirable person? So one of the examples like I give in the book is um, if you think about Everest, right? When we think about somebody like Rob Hall, um, so for, for those people who don't know, like if you've read the book Into Thin Air or you've seen the documentary Everest, this was in 1996 and there was a, a it was a disastrous year where, where a lot of people died on the mountain on Everest. And Rob Hall, who was this amazing alpinist and expedition leader, was one of those people who perished. And he is very much painted as a hero of that story. He had set turnaround times for every single day. And a turnaround time is just, if you haven't gotten to point A by this time, you must turn around and go back to whatever camp you're coming from. The reason being that there's a very, very dangerous part of that mountain called the South Ridge. uh, And you do not want to descend the South Ridge in darkness. You'll fall like 8,000 feet into Nepal. And Rob Hall broke the turnaround time. So, you know, and obviously it resulted in tragedy. And what's really interesting is that there were some people who followed the turnaround time um, who are also described in the book. They're also in the, in the documentary and nobody remembers their names. Just so you know, it's Hutchinson, Tasky and Kasichki. These are three people who turned around at the right time and made these great decisions. And they're totally invisible to us because they aren't the heroes of our narratives. And that that's part of the problem. Like, how do you get people like that to be the hero of your narrative? Yeah. Yeah. Can you also just close the loop for listeners on Rob Hall? So just noting that the reason he did not follow the turnaround time is he was trying to help this guy get up who had previously not been able to get up. And do you mind just sharing that? Because I think that's such an emotionally evocative part of the story, which is like, we can't quit a second time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Rob Hall actually got to the top, but then he waited there for two hours for a guy named Doug Hansen. And the question is why, right? Like why, why he was already an hour past the turnaround time. Doug Hansen clearly was well past the turnaround time and was not nearly as skilled a climber as Rob Hall was. So why didn't he turn around? And you have to rewind to the year before to know, to understand kind of what the forces were that caused him to do that. So the year before was a very bad climbing year. So um, Rob Hall had tried to summit with a group and Doug Hansen was in the group and they, they came back down. So they had abandoned their summit attempt. So now he convinces Doug Hansen to come back the next year because he says, I'll get you up the second time. Mm. And now we can see these forces. Like this is one of the big forces that causes us to not quit. And the phrase that I think is such a great phrase for us to really internalize is called in the losses. 
So when we're in the losses, we have the desire to get those back. And we don't think about, well, what's the probability that I would actually be able to succeed? That's number one. We don't think about, if I go for this, what are the opportunities I'm going to give up by going for it, right? And that's true of anything. Like if you're in a monogamous relationship, you're obviously foregoing the opportunities to date other people. If you're in a job, you're foregoing the other you know, opportunities to have other full-time jobs. So this is a really actually big problem is that we tend not to see what we're giving up in terms of the other opportunities that might be available to us when we're on a particular path. So if you think about um, climbing Everest, when we're thinking about trying to reach the summit, it causes this like myopia where we can't see like other things, other opportunities that we might have in our life, like to climb other mountains or to spend time with our families or whatever it else it is we might want to do that that pursuing that goal might actually make less likely for us to be able to do. Exactly. Um, Okay. So Annie, I'd love to dig into some of the behavioral biases we face that interfere with our ability to quit when we ought to. Um, Do you mind talking with listeners about escalation of commitment? Sure. Have you ever heard of the game Katamari? So Katamari is a game where it's the weirdest game. You start with this little tiny speck of something and you roll it around and it starts to pick stuff up. And if it picks things up that are smaller than it is, uh, it will pick it up and it will grow in size. If you try to pick something up that's bigger than the ball that you're rolling around, uh, it will cause the ball to become smaller again. So the idea is you're trying to create a ball that's big enough that you can start picking up planets and it becomes like the size of a, a sun. So you start off with this little ball that's like picking up specks of dust and flies and you're rolling it around like in a room and you're like, then you start picking up bottles, you pick up the cat, (laughs) you you know, you pick up like the couch and then you start picking up houses and you can pick up mountains and this thing just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And when I think about what happens to us that we don't quit, I think about Katamari because I think that it's such a great visual for understanding escalation of commitment. And it basically goes this way. You put time, resources, money, your own identity, right? Like if you think about a career or a major, it becomes part of your identity. Who am I? I'm a doctor. Who am I? Um, You know, I am an English major or I'm an engineer or whatever, right? These things become part of our identity. And then we're putting time and effort and money and, and all of this stuff, resources into this thing. Those, the fact that we've, we've, dumped all of that into the decision to to be on the path that we're on means that when we're faced with a decision about whether to quit or persevere, we're going to have a tendency to persevere because we've accumulated all of this debris like a Katamari ball. But what's interesting is that the fact that that pushes us to persevere means that now we persevere and now we put more time and more effort and more money and more resources and more of our identity into the thing that we're doing, which means that the next point that we're thinking about whether to quit or persevere, the ball is bigger. It's starting to become house-sized, which makes us then more likely to persevere again, and so on and so forth until you have like this Katamari that's the size of a planet, and you kind of can't quit at that point. So now we, if we go back to Rob Hall, we can see the problem, right? Because he's carrying a lot of that with him. He failed the year before. He's made a promise 
to Doug Hansen and that he's going to get him up. And that causes this myopia for him to sort of, I think, not see the situation for what it is, which is one that you should quit, go back down the mountain, grab, you know, Doug Hansen, and then, you know, maybe you have a chance the next year. I'm wondering, Annie, if you can talk a bit about the role of regret in all this, because there is a regret asymmetry that's important to acknowledge here, which is we tend to feel a lot of regret when we think about the idea of quitting, but somehow staying with the status quo does not fill us with those same feelings of regret. And so can you just talk to listeners a bit about regret asymmetry generally and how that plays a profound role in our conception of quitting, right? It's an antagonist towards quitting. Yeah. So there's two really important biases to think about because they collide here when it comes to quitting. The first cognitive bias is called status quo bias. Status quo bias is that we have a preference for the path that we're already on. Hmm. Okay. So we don't like to change. We have a preference to keep going the way that we're going. That collides with another bias, which is called omission commission bias. Uh, and what that is, is that failing to act does not feel as much like a decision as acting does, right? So let's say that I'm in a career or I'm in a relationship and I just stay the path. It doesn't feel like I've made a decision. If I move, if I quit my job and change, if I break up in the relationship, now it feels like I've actually made a decision. Now, the reason why this is an error is because the decision to stay in the job is also an active decision and, and you should treat it the same way. Like our regret treats those two things differently. Okay. So let's say that you're in a job that is just awful. Mm-hmm. I have had conversations with people quite often where this happens. They come to me and they say, um, I really hate my job. I'm trying to decide whether I should quit. I don't really know what I should do. And I ask them this question. Imagine it's a year from now and you're still in the job that you're in. Do you think you'll be happy? And they say no. So they're, what they're telling me is that 100% of the time, 12 months from now, I will be unhappy in the job that I'm in. Hmm. So now I say to them, okay, let's say that you quit this job and you go get this other job that you're thinking about. Imagine it's a year from now. Do you think you'll be happy? And they'll say, well, some of the time, you know, they'll say, like, let's just say they say it's a 50-50 chance. Okay, so they, they say, if I switch 50% of the time, I'll be happy 50% of the time I won't. Now, when I put it that way, it becomes obvious that you ought to quit because one path, you're unhappy 100% of the time. And another path, you're unhappy 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. So it seems clear that you ought to go take the other job. But this is where the regret asymmetry comes in, which is like we're very tolerant of the unhappiness that occurs from just staying the course. And we're very intolerant of the unhappiness that might occur if we switch. And that they'll actually express that out loud. They'll say, but what if I take the new job and I'm I'm unhappy? I'll feel like such an idiot. Versus staying the job that I know I hate and I already know have evidence I'm unhappy in. Yeah. Right? We'll be back in a moment with a slight change of plans when Annie will share scientific strategies you can use to quit more often and sooner. Should you send that email you wrote while you were mad? Probably not. Probiotics can't help with all of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. 
food choices, stress, or travel can throw off your gut health. That's where Ritual comes in. They made a three-in-one supplement called Symbiotic Plus with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. I make sure to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning, and I always appreciate that it's in a single minty capsule. Ritual prioritizes sustainably sourced ingredients and lower carbon packaging for its products, which is another reason I feel good about taking Symbiotic Plus. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slight. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slight for 25% off. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
One of the things that you said before that really struck me is is around this concept of identity. And the reason is that so much of a slight change of plans is about our identity, how fixed we can feel in our sense of identity in, in the face of a big change, um, and how it is that we can navigate that. And, and one of the things you, you know, alluded to is we can sometimes resist quitting, even when we know we ought to, because we attach that pursuit so closely to our identity. Or we take so much pride in our identity as good decision makers, we don't like the idea of having it revealed to us that maybe we didn't actually make a great decision in the first place when we decided to do X or Y. And I'm wondering if you have tips for listeners about how it is that we can disentangle our sense of identity from these kinds of decisions or from the attachment we have towards certain pursuits so that we can make clearer choices, um, more rational choices at these inflection points. So you talked about like, it's really hard for us to imagine that we made a bad decision so we won't give it up. But I I also want to add in there, sometimes we made a perfectly good decision, but the circumstances have changed. But in that situation, we don't want to give up because somehow we think it invalidates the decision that we made in the first place, which isn't true. Remember, we're making decisions under uncertainty. And and I think that's part of the problem is we forget that there's a third possibility, which is you made a perfectly fine decision and then you found out new stuff. And that's also, by the way, true in relationships. Like given what you knew at the time, seemed like a really good match. And then you found out new stuff. Like that person might've changed. I think that's incredibly important for people to understand is that sometimes stuff just changes. It's okay doesn't mean that you that you messed up in the first place. And very often, most of the time, you didn't mess up in the first place. Like if you put a sign on your lawn for a candidate and then the candidate gets involved in some scandal, it doesn't mean it was like it was a bad decision for you to vote for them in the first place because you didn't know. Yeah. And I love the thought experiment that you give, which I think elucidates this concept well, which is when you ask people, what's the best decision you've ever made? What's the worst decision you've ever made? We tend to not focus on the process by which we made the decision or the inputs to that decision, but instead what the outcome was. So what you found is you ask people what was the best decision. Well, they tend to choose the thing that had the best outcome uh, and, and vice versa for the bad one. And it's very possible, like you said, that let's say you made actually a really crappy decision, but you just lucked out, right? Like chance worked in your favor and new information appeared or whatnot, and you ended up with a good outcome. But I think that is a really helpful thought experiment because to your point, you might have very well made the decision to take on a pursuit or support a certain candidate. And it was a very smart choice given all the information you had at, had at that moment. Or, or, or by the way, your, your own preferences can change. I, I just want to, like, I want to make that really clear. Like, I know for me, like, the things that I thought that I wanted for myself in my 20s are, like, mm. very different than the things that I wanted for myself in my 30s. Yeah. So what's interesting there is that if somebody else were to look at the path you're on, like if somebody else were to look at the decision about whether you should sell that stock or the decision about whether you should change careers, they'll often see that more clearly than you because they're not endowed to it. If you have somebody else looking at the the decision, they don't have this, they don't have the dissonance. They don't they don't, they're not worried about squaring your past actions with your future actions or your present actions. They're just worried about whether it's sort of the best decision for you going forward. So you can see that getting somebody else to look at the decision and help you with it is actually going to be really helpful. So as the 
amazing Daniel Kahneman, Nobel laureate, said to me, uh, you should find someone who loves you but doesn't care about your feelings. <laughs> I love that. Just like present the situation to somebody else in an objective way and have them help you. So like in the simplest sense, if you're thinking about changing jobs and you're really struggling with that for all of these reasons and um, the whole Katamari, right? Like that all of that debris that you're accumulating when you're thinking about changing careers after like, you know, 15 years and training in college and all of this stuff, have someone else help you with the decision. They'll probably see it more clearly than you do. So that's that's like trick number one. Trick number two is to set the circumstances under which you might quit in advance of you having accumulated any of that debris mm-hmm. when the Katamari is just really tiny and it's not planet-sized yet, right? So if we can do that when it's tiny and we haven't actually accumulated all of that stuff, then when it comes time to quitting, we'll be better at it. So let me yeah. give you a really good example of deciding in advance. Turnaround times. So remember our intrepid climbers on Everest who turned around at 1 p.m. Now, notice those three climbers did, but a lot of other people didn't. So this is not perfect, right? It's not going to work 100% of the time. But if they didn't have those turnaround time, those three people would not have turned around. So it works some of the time. And some of the time, last time I checked, is better than none of the time. So one of the things that we want to do when we go in, whether it's a relationship or a job or anything is we want to sort of think before we enter into it, what are the things that could be occurring that would cause me to want to quit here? Another tactic, another strategy we can use to quit closer to when we should is to increase the flexibility in how we set goals, right? We, we tend to think about the world in binaries, right? You mm-hmm. you got to the top of Mount Everest or you didn't get to the or top. Or you completely failed. Exactly, even though you may have gotten seven-eighths of the way there. And I think this is compounded by what's called the goal gradient effect, which says that we see increases in our motivational levels the closer we are to reaching our goal, right? So in that seven eighth stretch of the mountain, right? Our will, yeah. our desire is is amplified um, in ways that can be very counterproductive. So can you talk a bit more about how listeners can set, I guess what I would call more reasonable goals so that we don't find ourselves between a rock and a hard place? Yeah. So, okay. So there's, there's this amazing work by Maurice Schweitzer, who's at Wharton at University of Pennsylvania, who he's really talked about, you know, I think that we we have this idea that goals are just generally good, mm-hmm. like as a universal, right? Like there's there's all this literature on goal setting as a motivational force. And he's coming at it from the other side. He's saying there's a real downside to goals, which is exactly what you talked about, which is when you have a goal, um, it does two things to you. One is it necessarily privileges certain values that you might have and deprivileges other values that you, you might have. So super simple. If you're going for Everest, you're privileging that that goal, right? Like I want to get to Everest. But what are you deprivileging? Comfort. You're deprivileging time with your family because it takes months to do it mm-hmm. away from your family, right? Um, so on and so forth. So you can see that whatever we're doing, you know, if we're spending time trying to do that last stretch of a project, we're deprivileging other goals that we might have, like spending time with our family or watching Ted Lasso mm-hmm. or co- taking a cooking class or whatever it is. So so I, I think that we need to be very thoughtful about if when I think about this goal, first of all, what am I not seeing? Mm. And what am I giving up that I'm 
following this goal. And then we also collide that with um, goals are also pass fail. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, it's better to have never tried to go up Everest at all than to have gotten within 300 feet of the summit and turned around. So that's also a problem. Yeah. All right. So how do we solve for this? There's kind of two ways that we solve for it. So the first way that we can do is to remember the word unless. And this is really important. And it goes back to this idea that I I was talking about before of think about these things in advance, right? So it's totally fine to say, this is my goal unless, Mm. right? So my goal is to reach the summit unless there's really bad weather or it's past 1 p.m. So this idea of this is my goal unless allows you to say, I am setting this goal given what my information is right now. The second thing I think, so I was speaking to Ken Kamler who It's really amazing. He had been a doctor on Everest actually six different times. And he said something I think that was really profound. He said, people forget when they're climbing Everest that the goal of Everest is not to get to the summit. The goal is to get back down to the base of the mountain. And why I think that that's so powerful is that he's talking about a time horizon problem. Is that we get really wrapped up in the short term a lot when we ought to be thinking about the long term. What is going to make us happy? Like if you're going to set a goal, you should think about a long-term goal. Like what is your, your goal over the course of your life? And in the shortest form, that should be like to maximize your happiness. Mm-hmm. So as you're staying in an incredibly miserable career, because you've put so much time into it and so much effort, and you don't want all of that to go to waste, and you don't want all the training to go to waste, and you're worried that Uh, what does it mean if you quit for who you are? Because you're an engineer or you're whatever. And then what will you be if you quit? And what will other people think about you? Won't they judge you for quitting? And all of that stuff that creates that planet-sized Katamari that stops us from quitting. When you're caught up in that, all of that stuff is weighing so heavily on you. It makes it really, really hard to leave. But you're miserable. Mm. And if you think about the long-term goal, of what in the end, as I look back on my life, is going to have made me happy, I think that when you can get to that more long-term thinking, you'll realize that grinding it out in a horrible career with a boss who is a nightmare in a toxic work environment is not in the long run going to make you really happy. So for our listeners who are having anxiety around quitting, right, I'm wondering, um, it's not a foolproof plan, right? I'm sure there have been things that you may have regretted quitting at some point in your life. But the upside is that you probably learn something valuable about your own decision-making process and how to improve that decision-making process mm-hmm. around quitting. So do you mind just sharing any regret you have about something you quit, but what you learned from that experience? You know, I'd, so, so the funny thing is, uh, so, so I, actually, I actually regret quitting academics in the first place. Part of what made me not go back to academics earlier was because I thought that all the people that I had studied with would be mad at me, including um, my amazing advisor. And I thought, oh, she must, you know, I just had it in my head that she must be so mad at me for quitting. And we reconnected um, 10 years ago, and she was so the opposite of mad at me. 
And that is a lesson that everybody needs to learn. It's like whatever you think that other people are thinking about you, it's probably not what they're actually thinking. And I stopped myself from, I, I deprived myself of a really important relationship in my life and the ability to actually be doing academics at the same time as I was doing something else that I loved in, in a much fuller way because I got caught up thinking about how other people might judge me. And I think that's a lot of what stops us from quitting. And when I came back to academics, everybody welcomed me with open arms and it was all living in my head. And so I, I would say that's like the biggest lesson for me. I love that so much. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, to your point, I think so much of your research and, and this upcoming book of yours is about how we rehabilitate quitting. And I think as a society, the way that we can change cultural norms around quitting is to recognize the compassion people will show us in the face of quitting yeah. and the lack of judgment, that, you know, that we think is going to exist in our heads, as you mentioned, um, but doesn't necessarily need to be the case. And I think that when you approach things as an either or, it becomes it puts a lot of extra pressure on you that you're closing the door to something. And when I talk to people who, for example, are about, are thinking about like um, changing careers and they're really having a hard time with it. One of the things that I always ask them is, can you go back to the other career if this doesn't work out? And they'll normally say, yes, there's no reason why they can't. And that seems to free them up to make the change. And I, I think that we have a tendency to think of decisions as last and final and in poker, you definitely can't think about it that way. That's that's one of the things that poker trained me to do is to realize decisions are not last and final. And you can always change course midstream. And you can often get back to choices that you rejected. And um, if we realize that more, I think that we'll, we would be more exploratory and it would it would make our outcomes better, actually. Join me next week when we'll hear from John Elder Robeson. He underwent experimental brain stimulation to deepen his emotional intelligence. And I'm walking through the mall, and I'm just like looking around at the people. And it was not beauty and sweetness and light. It was like fear and anxiety and worry and jealousy and all these things. And they're all coming at me from a million different directions, and there was nothing I could do. A Slight Change of Plans is created, written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. The best part of creating this show is getting to collaborate with my formidable Slight Change family. This includes Tyler Green, our senior producer, Jen Guerra, our senior editor, Ben Tolliday, our sound engineer, Emily Rostek, our associate producer, and Mia Lavelle, our executive producer. Luis Guerra wrote our delightful theme song, and Ginger Smith helped arrange the vocals. A Slight Change of Plans is a production of Pushkin Industries, so big thanks to everyone there. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker. And please remember to subscribe, share, and rate the show to help get the word out. See you next week. Now, I just want to set the stage for people. (laughs)
because this was in the 90s. Poker was not on TV. And pretty much every discussion I had with people where they said, what are you doing right now? And I was, I, I said, well, I'm playing poker. Usually, well, the first thing they would ask is, is your husband rich? Which, you know, <laughs> this was in the 90s. It's like, wow, that's super sexist. But then once they sort of figured out, no, like I was actually supporting, supporting us with this endeavor, they would usually ask if I had gone to Gamblers Anonymous. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.